My love for running began when I was a child. Growing up in New York City, I found myself playing lots of games that just required to run. I just had to run. Baseball, punch ball, stick ball, football, basketball. Each of these sports just required some amount of running. And I loved it. I loved the freedom that running gave me, that I could just move my legs and feet and they propelled me forward without having to rely on anything that was mechanical. And the more I ran, the more I realized that I was a faster runner than lots of boys my age. And so I started challenging friends, some who were considerably older than I was, to foot races. Eventually, I joined my junior high school's track team and found myself competing against much faster runners than myself, so much so that I finished in last place in every race except one, where I finished next to last. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if my poor showing as a runner in junior high school had anything to do with it, but as I entered my high school years and then later my college years, I lost my passion for running, and so like Forrest Gump, I just stopped. I just stopped running. And that continued until one very specific day in the year 1988. Michelle and I were watching the track and field events in the Olympic Games from Seoul, Korea, and all of a sudden, I had this urge to run again. And so I turned to Michelle and said, I'm going out for a run. Do you want to join me? And she did. So for several weeks, we ran in our neighborhood doing runs of one mile, which initially I could barely make. But I persevered. And before long, I found myself running longer distances, even entering some races in our community, and eventually becoming a long-distance marathon runner. Now, I'm telling you all of this because tonight we have come to a passage of Scripture that compares the Christian life to running a race. The passage I'm referring to and where I'd like you to turn your Bibles or tablets is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want to read to you verses 24 through 27. Paul said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, the Bible often compares the Christian life to a foot race. This is not the only passage addressing this issue. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, in Galatians 5-7, Paul said to the Galatians, he said, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well, you were moving well, who hindered you from that? And then in 2 Timothy 4.7, that classic statement by the Apostle Paul just shortly before his death, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept 
the faith. Now, each of these passages compares the Christian life to a foot race. And each passage is intended to make a particular point. The point being, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, is that the writer is encouraging his readers to persevere in the midst of difficulties, trials, suffering, and to do this by walking by faith because the Christian life is like an agonizingly long endurance marathon race in which you just have to persevere. In Galatians 5, Paul is talking about making steady progress, sanctification, spiritual growth in the Christian life because the Galatians were being hindered from this steady progress and sanctification by false teachers. And Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4 is to say that having come to the end of his life and therefore the course that the Lord had set before him, he had finished his race, meaning God's will for his life. Now, in order to understand Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, our study tonight, and why he speaks here of the Christian life as if it were a foot race, it demands that we remember the context of these words. And the context is that in the verses leading up to his words about running, the apostle has been making the argument that though he has every right to be paid by the Corinthians for his ministerial services to them, he has chosen to give up that right. He wants no payment. He receives no payment. And the reason he's even writing about this, folks, is to teach the Corinthians that they need to give up their right, not about being compensated for their labors, but their right to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And to do this, he's telling them, for the sake of those in their church who consider this behavior to be sinful and wrong. Their conscience was bothered by this. So the message that Paul has been giving the Corinthians is that they need to deny themselves. They need to sacrifice for the sake of others. They need to love their brethren to the point of laying aside their rights for their brethren. And Paul's way of teaching the Corinthians the importance of just giving up those rights in order to benefit others is to use himself as an example and as an illustration. And he does this, as I said, by taking just one issue in his life, not the issue of food to eat, but the one issue in his life, the issue of being financially compensated for his pastoral labors, he takes that issue to demonstrate the truth that though he has every right to be paid for his ministry, he chose to give up that right, and instead he financially supported himself by being a tent maker. Paul made tents. But listen closely, because not only does Paul state the fact that he gave up his right to be paid for his ministry to others, but starting with verse 15 of chapter 9, which we studied a couple of weeks ago, Paul begins to give several reasons to explain why he refused any financial remuneration for his services. And the first reason being this, he says he didn't want to lose his reward. Now, without going back and reviewing the verses we've already covered, I just want to briefly point out that what Paul, in essence, said in verses 15 through 18 is that he refused to be paid for his services because he didn't want to lose his reward for not charging anyone for his services. And the reward that he's referring to wasn't an eternal reward that he would receive in heaven. That's not the reward he has in mind. But rather, it is the personal joy the personal thrill, the personal satisfaction that he received by not taking any money 
for his preaching because it revealed that his motives in preaching were pure. It communicated to those he ministered to that he had absolutely no interest in gaining anything from them. He didn't want to take from them. He wanted to give to them. He was interested in them. He was interested in their souls, not in their bank accounts. You see, Paul was so concerned that the gospel would advance throughout the Roman Empire and that people would respond to it that he did everything in his power to make sure that he never personally became an obstacle that would hinder the spread of the gospel because someone might question his motives in preaching. And so he decided to just not charge others for the work of preaching. Now understand this, he did not insist on this for anybody else. He didn't make this an apostolic command. This is, this is not a biblical rule. He just decided that this was best for him because, I suspect, as apostle to the Gentiles, he knew that many Gentiles would be suspicious of a, a Jewish man expecting them to pay him to hear his message about Israel's Messiah. That was just sort of unheard of. And so Paul said, I'm not even going to get into money with them. So Paul's reward for ministering freely was just the satisfaction it gave him to proclaim Christ without anyone questioning his motives for preaching. They couldn't question if he didn't take money from them. So that's the first reason he gave for not being paid, because he didn't want to lose his reward. His reward on earth was his satisfaction that he received from doing this. Second reason he gave for not being paid was because he wanted to win people to Christ. Again, summing up the gist of Paul's teaching from verses 19 through 23, the apostle lists three groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, and those, he says, who were weak, meaning they were weak in their understanding. And he tells us whenever he was with these individual people groups, he gave up his right to live any way he wanted to live. And he became, what he says, a slave to them, a slave by adjusting himself to their lifestyle. And his purpose in doing this, he says, was to lead as many of these people to Christ as possible. That is to say, he chose to give up his right to live the way he wanted to live, to dress the way he wanted to dress, to eat the foods he wanted to eat, to go places he wanted to go, so that he would not turn off people by his personal behavior, his preferences in life, to the point that they then looked at him and said, well, we're not interested in hearing what you have to say to us about Christ. We don't want to have anything to do with you. In other words, Paul says he became a slave to all these people by giving up his personal rights so that he might not hinder the gospel from reaching them. This is how he evangelized, folks. He identified with the people he was with so that he might gain credibility in their eyes in order that they would be willing to sit down and listen to him when the time came for him to tell them about Christ. This is exactly what the English missionary J. Hudson Taylor did when in the 1800s, Hudson Taylor went to China to evangelize the people there. He founded the China Inland Mission. There have been some missionaries on the coast of China, but nobody who went into the interior of China except this Englishman, J. Hudson Taylor. And Taylor, when he reached the inland of China, he began to do something that up to this point, no Western missionary had ever done. He began to dress and to live like he was Chinese rather than European. 
And he did this in order to identify with the people of China so that they wouldn't think that his message about Christ was merely a Western world message and not something for them. So, like Paul, J. Hudson Taylor's method of evangelizing others was, become, was to become all things to all men so that he might win some. In a paper I read online just this week, I was doing some research about Hudson Taylor, and here's what one expert on Taylor's strategy in missions wrote. He said, and I quote, J. Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission, which he founded in 1865, are well known for their adoption of Chinese dress in contrast to most foreign missionaries at the time and afterwards. What may not be as well known is the connection between wearing Chinese-style clothing and other aspects of Taylor's unusual approach to conducting foreign missionary work in China, namely eating Chinese food with Chinese implements, living amongst the Chinese in Chinese housing, the high standards which he and the missionary set for acquisition of the languages of those whom they intended to reach, care to observe local customs and etiquette, and refusing protection from the British authorities and the military power at their disposal. Listen, the reason J. Hudson Taylor lived like this, and at first understand he was severely criticized for this. He was called a madman. His mission was referred to as the pigtail mission. But the reason he did this, in spite of being criticized, that he felt like this would remove some unnecessary resistance to him and his colleagues as foreign missionaries and would more easily allow them to have a platform to preach the gospel to the Chinese people. This was exactly what Paul was talking about. This is what Paul did. And Hudson Taylor followed in his footsteps. And what other countless missionaries have done from that point on. And folks, it is exactly what we are to do in evangelizing. We are to become slaves to those we want to reach for Christ by giving up our rights to do anything that we want to do. I mean, if you were interested in witnessing, let's say, to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and you took him out for lunch, would you be willing to give up eating barbecue pork that day, even though you love barbecue pork? Now, you may think, well, that's a silly example, and it probably is, but it illustrates the truth that we have to be willing to give up what we want to do, our favorite foods, the way we dress, the way we conduct certain things. So, would you be willing to give, if you have the freedom to drink wine or beer, would you be willing to give that up in evangelizing an unsaved person who is recovering from alcoholic addiction? Would you be willing to eat strange and perhaps not too pleasant foods if you were a missionary in some distant country? Would you be willing to give up some time to spend with an obnoxious, unsaved, complaining person? at an event that they enjoyed, but you couldn't care any less about this event? Would you be willing to go to a party where there were a lot of homosexual people in order to get to know them and build a relationship with them with the hopes of eventually witnessing to them about Christ? And you may say, well, I'm out of my comfort zone. Well, that's the point. We'd all be out of our comfort zones. We are to go out of our comfort zone. You think, Paul, that was his comfort zone? Of course not. The point is that we are always to be aware of anything in our lives, especially those things that we really do enjoy 
that might hinder the gospel moving forward so that we can remove them and not be an obstacle to others. That's exactly what Paul did. In his case, it was expecting to be paid for preaching. In your case, ask the Lord, even as I'm asking the Lord, what would you have me give up? What do I need to give up to be more like Paul in terms of being a slave to unsaved people? Now, this is where we left off two weeks ago. And so having looked at the first two reasons for Paul refusing to receive any money for his ministry, we now come to our passage tonight about running a race. As Paul gives us, this is his third and his final reason for refusing to be paid for his services, which is because he says he did not want to be disqualified by God. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Now, it might seem odd to you, I'm sure it does seem a little odd, that Paul would seemingly just out of nowhere mention running a race. You might think, well, where did this come from? However, I assure you it wasn't odd to the Corinthians at all because they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. You see, the city of Corinth was the site of the Isthmian game, second only in importance to the Greek Olympics. Writing about the Isthmian games, one Bible teacher said this, and I quote, held every three years in honor of Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, the Isthmian games were the centerpiece of Corinthian civic pride. Next to the olive branch that was awarded to Olympic champions, the Corinthian pine branch wreath was one of the most coveted of all athletic awards. The main event of the Isthmian Games was a foot race. If you go to Corinth today, you can visit the ruins of the arena where the races were run. The starting blocks where the athletes began their races are still embedded in the stones. Knowing how important the Isthmian Games were to the people of Corinth, Paul uses a foot race as a metaphor to describe how the Christian life should be lived. So it was not a surprise to the Corinthians when Paul seemingly out of nowhere comes up about a race. Paul begins by saying that though many runners compete in a foot race, he says only one runner, the one who finishes first, he's the only one who wins the prize. And as Paul will explain in the verses that follow, the one who wins this prize is the person who has trained hard, the person who has denied himself greatly, the person who has sacrificed much, the one who ran this race did it because he gave an all-out effort holding back nothing. In other words, the winner of this race put everything into going for the prize. It took rigorous training, it took discipline, self-control, self-denial, and a host of sacrifices. And it's in light of that kind of self-discipline and all-out effort by the winner of this race that Paul exhorts us. At the end of verse 24, he says, so run in such a way that you may win. In other words, Paul is comparing the foot race in the Isthmian games to the Christian life. And he is exhorting us, each of us, to run the Christian life with the same kind of self-discipline and all-out effort that the winner of the Isthmian Games had in order to win a reward given to us by God. Now understand, Paul is not suggesting that only one Christian can win a reward from God. Because the Bible teaches that in heaven God will reward all Christians who have been faithful to Him. 
But what Paul is saying is that all of us who know Christ are to be as self-disciplined and put as much effort into running and living the Christian life as the winner of the Isthmian Games put into winning his prize. That's the point that Paul is making. Now let's put this together. Think about what Paul has just finished telling the Corinthians. He's told them about how he makes himself a slave to various people groups, Jews, Gentiles, and the weak, in order to win some of them to Christ. And that required him to have the kind of self-discipline and self-control necessary to give up his rights in order to live the way he wanted to live. As I said, dress the way he wanted to dress, eat what he wanted to eat, go places he wanted to go. He gave up all of those with one goal in mind, not to win an earthly race, but to win as many people as he could win to Jesus Christ. So now, what he is telling then the Corinthians and all of us is that we are to live the same way that he lived. A life of self-discipline and self-denial as we move amongst unsaved people and seek to win them to Christ. This is how we are to run the race that God has set before us. This is how we are to live the Christian life with an all-out effort that includes giving up our rights, our liberties, our freedoms for the sake of not hindering the gospel and leading others to Christ. I love the way John MacArthur put it. He said, holding tightly to liberties and rights is a sure way to lose the race of soul winning. Many of the Corinthian Christians seriously limited their testimony because they would not limit their liberty. They refused to give up their rights, and in so doing, they won few and offended many. So, having exhorted us then to run the Christian life with the same kind of discipline and effort that a champion runner runs his race, Paul now proceeds to remind the Corinthians just how disciplined those who competed in the Isthmian Games actually were. Notice the beginning of verse 25. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. With these words, Paul states that all those who competed in the Isthmian games trained hard and exercised a great deal of self-control during their training. One Bible teacher who is familiar with the training that was involved in these particular games, he wrote this. He said, the sports-minded Corinthians knew that every athlete who participated in the Isthmian Games took an oath to train hard for 10 months. During training, the athletes had to give up certain foods in order to build up strength and endurance. But listen, their 10-month regimen involved far more than giving up certain foods. I mean, it involved that, but it went beyond that. It involved getting the proper rest, getting enough sleep, going through the monotonous athletic drills, practicing their running every day, and abstaining from certain bodily indulgences. And why did they put their bodies and their minds through such rigorous training? Why did they do this? Well, Paul tells us why in the second part of verse 25. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. All of their self-control, painstaking self-denial, bodily restrictions was for just one single purpose, one single reason, to win the race so that they would receive a perishable 
wreath, which was made of either pine or parsley. That's it. That's the reason. All of the strenuous work and effort they put 10 months of their lives into training for this race was to receive a parsley wreath that was already withering to some degree when they got it and eventually would completely dry up and wither. Listen, I understand personally something about this because when I used to run marathons, I would devote about six months out of the year into very disciplined and hard training. I ate certain foods. I denied myself sleep in order to get up very early on Saturday mornings for my long runs. I worked out with weights to strengthen certain muscles. I stretched a great deal to gain more flexibility in other muscles. I even worked hard at mental toughness, building up mental toughness, because at times I would run on a treadmill for hours and turn the music off just to train myself to handle the monotony of a long-distance race. And why did I do all of this? Well, there were a number of reasons that I put myself through such rigorous training. But one reason was so that at the end of the race, I would cross the finish line and I would receive a medal which was placed around my neck. Now, this medal doesn't wither like a parsley wreath withered, but it's just as worthless as far as eternity is concerned. In fact, I would assume that soon after I die, my children are going to go through all of my stuff. They're going to come across my running medals and ask if anyone in the family wants them. And when they all say, no, what, are, what would we possibly do with them? They'll just throw them in the trash. And that'll be that. They're just corruptible prizes. That's all. But pursuing a corruptible prize is not why we are to be disciplined and self-controlled in running the Christian life. We have a much higher and a much greater motivation. And Paul tells us what that motivation is in the last few words of verse 25. But we, and imperishable. In other words, we deny ourselves and we run hard in the Christian life with an all-out effort in order to receive not a perishable reward, but an imperishable reward in heaven from Jesus when we get to glory. And the Bible, you know, the Bible mentions several imperishable rewards. The Bible in the New Testament refers to them as crowns that the Lord will give to his followers in glory. Apparently, this is not an exhaustive list, but it gives you some idea of what awaits us for faithfully serving our Lord. For example, there is the crown of righteousness for those who have loved the Lord's second coming. Paul speaks of that in 1 Timothy 4.8. There is the crown of life for those believers who have endured a great deal of suffering in the form of trials. James chapter 1 verse 12 tells us that. And there is even the crown of glory for those pastors who faithfully shepherded God's people according to 1 Peter 5.4. But note this. You won't receive any rewards unless you control your body. Unless you discipline your body so that it does not control you by leading you to be lazy and sloppy and indulgent in the way you live. Concerning the discipline necessary to be a top athlete and how this applies to the Christian life, one Bible teacher said this. He said, the athlete's disciplined self-control is a rebuke to half-hearted, 
out-of-shape Christians who do almost nothing to prepare themselves to witness to the lost and consequently seldom do. But Paul wasn't like that. Folks, he wasn't like that at all. Everything he did, especially in terms of evangelizing others, witnessing to others, it had a purpose to it. He had a purpose. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had a plan. He worked hard at exercising self-control and discipline that it took for him to be an effective witness as he gave up his rights. And he tells us exactly how he did this in verses 26 and 27. Therefore, here's his conclusion. Here's the point he's been aiming at to tell us. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Using running, running a race as a metaphor for the Christian life, Paul explains that he runs not without aim, meaning that he always keeps his focus on the finish line. He runs the route of the race. He doesn't take detours and go off course. In other words, Paul had a purpose in running the Christian life, and that purpose was to lead as many people as he could to Christ. This was his goal. This was his aim. This was his focus. And then, changing metaphors from running a race to boxing, the sport of boxing, Paul makes the same point. He says that he boxed in such a way so as not to beat the air. What does he mean by that? He means that he didn't waste his punches on shadow boxing by just taking wild swings at the air. Instead, he boxed with purpose. What was that purpose? Well, it was to hit his opponent. That's the point of boxing. Illustrating again the point that his purpose in the Christian life was to win as many people as he could to Jesus Christ. And to accomplish this goal of leading people to Christ, Paul states in verse 27 that the way he did this was by disciplining his body, making it his slave so that he told his body what to do rather than his body telling him what to do. I just want to stop here for a moment to tell you what an important truth the Apostle Paul is stating. He's stating this truth when he says that he makes his body his slave. That is an incredibly significant truth. You see, Paul was so serious about the discipline necessary to live the Christian life, and especially what he needed to lead souls to Christ, that the expression here, I discipline my body, literally, in the Greek text, it means to strike under the eye. What Paul is saying, metaphorically speaking, is that he gives himself a black eye. He hits himself. He makes himself black and blue with bruises. That's how serious he is about bringing his body under subjection rather than letting his body tell him what to do. That is to say, he's the boss over his body, not the other way around. Now listen closely. Because most of us have never really thought through the discipline necessary to follow Christ, especially in this area of giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. But John MacArthur has thought a great deal about this, and here's what he had to say about this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He said, most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Their bodies tell their minds what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat how much to eat, when to sleep and get up, and so on. An athlete cannot allow that. 
He follows the training rules, not his body. He runs when he would rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he would rather have a chocolate sundae. He goes to bed when he would rather stay up and he gets up early to train when he would rather stay in bed. An athlete leads his body. He does not follow it. It is his slave, not the other way around. So, if you have allowed your body to control you up to this point, stop it. Just stop it right now. And start making your body your slave. You tell it what to do in all areas of life, but especially when it comes to giving up your rights for the sake of gaining a hearing and presenting the gospel to an unbeliever. You're the boss of your body, not your body being the boss of you. So Paul lived a very disciplined life. Question is, why did he live like this? Why was he so passionate about discipline and self-control? Well, he tells us why at the end of verse 27. So that, here's the reason he did it. After I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And Paul says that he didn't want to be disqualified. The question is, what did he mean by this. Well, he certainly didn't mean that he would lose his salvation because scripture is abundantly clear that salvation is eternal. So Paul isn't saying, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my relationship with Christ. No, this is the man who said, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Once again, the answer is this. Paul is using the metaphor of a race. And the disqualification he's referring to is being disqualified from being declared the winner of the race because of a failure to meet all the necessary training requirements leading up to the race. Now listen closely. The actual literal disqualification that the apostle has in mind is being disqualified as an effective witness for Christ. That's the context of this verse. He's saying that after preaching to others the importance of leading a disciplined life By giving up our rights, Paul said, I don't want to be disqualified myself. I don't want to be excluded from being an effective witness because I failed to lead a disciplined life. I preach to others about this. If I don't do this, I'll be disqualified from being an effective witness. I can't possibly be all things to all men unless I'm disciplined. And so to keep from being disqualified as an effective witness who people would want to listen to, To hear what he had to say about Christ, Paul said he kept up this rigorous self-discipline necessary by making his body his slave so he could be a slave to others in order to lead some to Christ. So what does all of this say to us? Well, it says a lot. It says that, that if you hope to honor Christ with your life, you need to be disciplined in all areas. Reading the Word, spending time in prayer, going to church, being, being in fellowship with others. And if you hope to lead people to the Savior, you absolutely have to be disciplined. So disciplined that you are willing to give up your rights to be comfortable, whatever that entails in your sphere of life. You need to do what Paul did. Give up your freedom to live any way you want to live in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. Folks, that's the message of 1 Corinthians 9, and in particular, these last few verses. Now, I would be remiss on a message dealing with soul winning if I didn't say if any of you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to. 
You need to repent of your sin. You need to come to the Savior. You need to humble yourself and trust Him to be your Savior. But for the rest of us who who do know Christ, you need to be thinking, what do I need to give up? What comforts do I need to give up? What people do I need to hang with, even if I'm not comfortable hanging with them? My time, my energy, my resources. What foods do I have to give up to maybe take somebody out for lunch or dinner and know that, that they're not comfortable eating this food? What perhaps alcoholic beverages do I need to give up? Maybe for life, if it would make me a better witness for Christ. These are the questions you need to be asking the Lord to show you in your life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, what a magnificent passage of Scripture this is. And I know that I, I haven't done it justice, but I pray that what has been spoken will reach our hearts, will challenge us to live disciplined, self-controlled lives that honor you and especially that help us to be effective witnesses for Christ. Lord, I pray that you give each one of us that desire to seek you, to seriously seek you as to what you would have us give up in being a witness to others. Some of the examples I gave, some others that you might bring to our minds, I'm praying that you'll show me what I need to give up to be a more effective witness. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to take these things to heart and to obey them. We do thank you for Paul. We thank you, Lord, that he was such an example for us. And may we follow him as he follows you, Lord Jesus. I pray that in days to come, Lord, that you'll give us the joy of leading some people to Christ, of showing them that we love them enough so that we don't hinder the gospel because we insist on getting our way. So I pray you'll take these truths and apply them to our lives. And if anyone is here or watching who doesn't know you, may you open their hearts to know Christ and the salvation he offers by grace through faith. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.